And let me also, with Sam, say uh, good morning and hello. Uh, I met uh, several new people this morning, and always a joy to have uh, you come and worship with us. Um, just mindful, uh, even this week, I, th- I think you saw that in my message, we had to cancel the uh, members meeting, and there's just a lot of people in our church that have been hit with COVID and sickness, and there's uh, procedures and surgeries coming up, and so we want to be mindful of our church family, uh, not only to pray, but to see how we can meet tangible needs. I'm always encouraged when I hear of meals that are being sent and people that are getting visited, and so thank you for just being a, a faithful and loving church. Well, this morning, we are going to turn our attention away just briefly from Philippians because it's a special day. We have a few baptisms, and so uh, I just thought it is so important for us to revisit uh, the doctrine of baptism and describe what it is, what it means, what are the modes of baptism. And uh, I was I was really uh, intrigued yesterday as I went online just to look at a few things. One of the things that I saw was um, the metaverse. You're familiar with the metaverse. Facebook making this big investment in, in transformation into kind of a virtual reality. And uh, what uh, Jess and I watched, I think it was maybe about seven minutes, um, and I, I shared that with the prayer team this morning. Um, at first, I was laughing at it because it was just so ridiculous. And then I realized, wait, this is real life, and these are real people, and these are people that are calling themselves Christians and a part of a church. So it was um, virtual reality. You stick this thing on, and then you transport yourself into this, like, temple type thing where there's lots of water and there's the pastor who's presiding over this baptism. And uh, then you have this uh, anime looking girl who's actually a guy. And uh, the witnesses are um, Winnie the Pooh, Tigger, and SpongeBob, people who have taken on this avatar. And this is a baptism that's happening that they're calling a church and why come to church when you could stay at home and you can witness a baptism here? So really, I was, is this a joke? And then you read the article that goes along with it and says, this is the way the church is going. And I said, no, it's not. Not, not the true church. Add to that, this morning I looked on Twitter and saw that Bethel Church was having a baptism where the, the, the pastor said, uh, so why are you getting baptized this morning? And she said, well, because I have been made a warrior for the animal kingdom, and I can't fight on behalf of animals apart from the Lord's help. And again, that's one of those things where you hear that. You, am I hearing this? Cra- is this a joke? Is this, is this just like something funny that someone posted online? And the reality is, no, th- this is happening inside of churches. And it's terrifying, and it's sad. And so what I want to do today is I want to just go to the Bible and take a look at what the Bible says about baptism. Now, let me add to that uh, my own confusion growing up about baptism, what it is, what it meant, how it was supposed to be done. And so I just have a few pictures that I want to show you. Um, The first is a picture of me as a little baby, as an infant. I don't know, is it up there yet? There, There we are. There is my... Beautiful mom, Laura, and uh, my sweet, my Nina Betty, my godmother. And here I am as an infant being baptized into the Catholic Church. 
Mom grew up uh, going to Catholic school, and um, she was just trying to be faithful to what she was taught. And so I was baptized as a young baby into the Catholic Church, although I didn't really go to Catholic Church uh, ever, except Christmas and Easter maybe sometimes, and maybe some weddings. But those are the only times I set foot in a Catholic Church. Went to Catholic high school eventually. Um, But I remember when I started going to a Christian church around junior high, um, there were quite a few baptisms that would take place at a park or in the backyard in someone's pool. And uh, I, I remember not having a whole lot of like context for what, what are we doing here? Is this like, I thought I was coming to a pool party and why, why are people being dunked in the water? So at a young age, I just remember thinking like, what is this whole baptism thing? Uh, I mean, some of you grew up in the church, you've got a good idea, but for those of us that did not grow up in the church, it seems like a strange practice. Well, I did get saved in 1999, and I mentioned this last time, is when I did get saved, um, a genuine conversion, genuine faith, genuine repentance, genuine turning to Christ, uh, I met a couple of guys who said, hey, have you been baptized? I said, no, I have not. And they said, well, then you are not saved. You, in fact, are going to hell. And remember, this was the LA Church of Christ, the Boston movement, who really put a lot of fear in me that, man, maybe I wasn't truly saved. Maybe there was an extra step to kind of put the stamp of approval on my salvation. And so um, I remember going home and uh, turning on the water in the bathroom and baptizing myself because I was terrified. I mean, the thought of, I thought I knew Jesus, and if I'm missing a step, If I'm not filling out the form correctly, I don't want to go to hell because I didn't do what I needed to do. And so that is what I did. I baptized myself. But then I realized, okay, look, I I do need to get baptized. And the church that I was at was having a baptism at the beach. And here in August of 1999, just right before I got to the campus of the Master's College, I was baptized as a believer But there are some things that I really regret about that. Um, That is me being baptized along with someone who is not my wife. There was this kind of spontaneous communal thing that was going on. And so, again, I was baptized, uh, did not become a member of a church, did not have a very clear understanding of what baptism was, did not give a testimony. It was just um, an event that I wanted to be at because I wanted to be faithful. I wanted to be obedient to what I believe the Bible taught but had very little understanding. So there's a little bit of my background, uh, and maybe, again, some of you are like me, where you've grown up around it maybe a little bit, you've seen it, but what, 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 what does the Bible actually say about baptism? That's what we're going to look at today from the Scriptures. In fact, if you open up our doctrinal statement, you'll see that section, section 6 on the church, and you'll read this definition, which also is our main idea for today. So it's a long one. Follow me here as I read. This is coming straight from our doctrinal statement. It says this, We believe and teach that two ordinances have been committed to the local church. Those two ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Christian baptism by immersion is the solemn and beautiful testimony of a believer showing forth his faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior, and his union with him in death to sin and resurrection to a new life. It is also a sign of fellowship and identification with a visible body of Christ. 
Now, I'm not sure that you're going to memorize all that, um, but what I want to do today is I want to just kind of take that phrase by phrase and explain from the Bible what baptism is, what believer's baptism is. And so if we're going to do that, um, we know that we don't live um, by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So let's turn our attention to prayer and ask the Lord for help. Father, we are desperate for your help, your assistance. Um, we, we know that we cannot come to a knowledge of the truth. We cannot worship in spirit and truth apart from the Spirit's work in us, helping illumine our hearts and minds to the truth of your word. So we pray that you would be our help, that you would give us a clear understanding that there are so many convoluted teachings about baptism, believers' baptism, and we pray that you would bring clarity to our hearts and minds this morning. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your commitment to growing us in sanctification, even as we profess and proclaim. We pray this in your name. Amen. Here's our outline for this morning, and you see it there in your bulletin. We're asking the question again, what is believer's baptism? And I think one of the best places to start is talking about what baptism is not. It is certainly not in the metaverse, uh, in virtual reality, uh, detached from what God has called us to in the scriptures. Um, But we'll look at that, what baptism is not. And then we'll identify that baptism is an ordinance, that it is a Christian ordinance, that it is by immersion, that it is a public proclamation, that it expresses our union with Christ, and that it identifies us with the local church. Okay, there's our outline. Let's tackle it one by one here. First of all, what is baptism not? Uh, John Calvin was um, famous for saying that it is neither magic nor a mirage. Well, what did Calvin mean by that? Well, when he was describing the sacraments, he said oftentimes people fall into the trap of thinking that baptism and the Lord's Supper fall into one of those two categories, magic or mirage. But what, what does he mean? Well, evangelicals are particularly sensitive to the dangers of magic, that is, placing a magical power with the water and thinking that somehow, some way, that when someone goes down in the water, something magical happens. But that is not the case. Neither is that the case when it comes to the elements as they're here before us this morning. But equal and an opposite danger is to treat the sacraments as a mirage. Just to say, well, there really is no significance to what we're doing. It's just something that we do, some sort of rote thing that we do because we're commanded to do it. And Calvin said, no, we need to avoid both extremes. Well, baptism is also not the way that someone gets saved. There are people, there are churches, a lot of people that actually teach baptismal regeneration. The the LA Church of Christ teaches baptismal regeneration. The the Catholic Church, other sects, other cults teach that unless you are baptized, you cannot be saved. But we know that from the scriptures, we are saved by what? Faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. We are not saved by any work. We do not add anything to our justification. One of the clearest evidences of that is when Jesus is on the cross and here's a brother who has repented, who has turned in his heart, who's acknowledged his sinfulness and said, Jesus, please forgive me. And what does Jesus say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, hold on, time out. Let's get off the cross. Let's baptize this guy. Okay, now we're secure. Now you can go to heaven. That is not the case. You can throw out all kinds of scenarios of someone gets saved on a plane, they crash. Does that person really go to heaven? Of course they do. Why? Because we're justified by faith in Christ. 
Baptism is not how we get saved. Baptism is also not you earning extra favor with God. Extra favor with God. According to Roman Catholic theology, this is what water baptism is. First, they say it's necessary for salvation, that it eradicates original sin, that it provides forgiveness of personal sins, that it causes the new birth, that infuses sanctifying grace apart from personal faith, that it allows replacing of personal faith with the faith of the church, and it's conveyed grace by a priest. And we take a list, a look at the long list of things, and we say that is not what the Bible teaches about baptism. I think the Apostle Paul would simply come to the Pope and to all of those who embrace Roman Catholic doctrine, and he would say this, Galatians 3, verse 2. This is the only thing I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The Apostle Paul has very strong words for anyone, anyone who would try to add to their justification anything other than faith, grace, Christ. Baptism is also not you making a more advanced commitment to Christ. Did you catch that? An advanced commitment to Christ. You say, Dom, what do you mean by that? Well, there are several people who believe that when you get baptized, that's kind of like you've arrived. You, you were a baby Christian, an infant Christian, but now that you're being baptized, now it's time for you to actually embrace Jesus as Lord. So some people will say, yes, you received Jesus as Savior, but when you get baptized, it's when, okay, now we're really going to start walking and obeying and being obedient and submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that also is not what baptism is. It's not an additional commitment. Baptism is not merely a religious rite. It's not a rite of passage. Baptism, we don't put any special underwear on. It's not a secret handshake. All of those things are not what the Bible teaches about baptism. So you say, okay, Dama, what, what is it? If we put it in just maybe a sentence, kind of condensing what our doctrinal statement says, baptism is a public, symbolic act that represents an inward spiritual reality and testifies to our union and identification with Christ and his church. I'll say that again. It is a public symbolic act that represents an inward spiritual reality and testifies to our union and identification with Christ and his church. It really is just an outward picture of a, it's a, it's a spiritual snapshot. That's what it is of an inward reality. And you say, well, why do we regard it so highly and practice it regularly? And first place to start is that it's commanded by the Lord. That, that's really number one. Baptism is an ordinance. Even when you ask the question, how, how do we get this idea, this concept of ordinances? It's just simply that this is something that Jesus ordained. He, he commanded it, and he commanded us to obey it perpetually until he returns. Now, I find it interesting that there are a lot of things that people say are essential for a church to be a church. 
Uh, I've been to Bible studies. I'm going to go to an FCA this coming Wednesday and take a number of you with me. And so we're going to go to a high school and we're going to share the gospel and, and, and be able to communicate Christ to these high school students. But there are some people who meet in groups, parachurch things, uh, meet on campuses, uh, meet in homes that they say we are a church. Well, what really is the definition of a church? How do you determine what a church actually is? Well, certainly you cannot have a church without elders, pastors, leaders in the church. But I would say also you cannot have a church if a church is not practicing these two ordinances that the Lord identifies as something that's to continue until he returns. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Let me just show you from the scriptures the Great Commission in verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Here are our instructions. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is one thing that you cannot get away from, and that is Jesus clearly commands this. He ordains this, meaning that we can't say this is obscure, or it's an unclear command because we see it repeated in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. And you say, well, how long is this ordinance supposed to take place? Well, look there in verse 20. Jesus says, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Whenever it's all said and done, that is when we continue to baptize until Christ returns. So baptism, it's a command that we are to obey, we are to teach, we are to practice until the second coming. Christ commands the church to baptize, but notice that he says that we are to baptize disciples, believers. And so that's our next point, that baptism is a Christian ordinance. It is for those that have repented of their sin. It is for those that have trusted in Christ and Christ alone and his finished work on the cross. That is who baptism is for. In other words, it's for those who have placed their faith in Christ and they're not claiming anything else. The scriptures say it is for believers, which means that faith, belief, always precedes baptism. And we see this pattern at the very beginning of the church why don't you open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Christ gives the great commission. He says, you wait for the Spirit to come. The day of Pentecost comes. Acts chapter 2. Peter takes his stand. He begins to preach. He begins to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who paid the penalty for sin. And as Peter is preaching, the crowds are listening. There must be thousands and thousands listening to Peter preach the gospel. But there's a pattern that's set in the beginning of Acts that moves all the way throughout. And it is the gospel is being preached. People are hearing it. People are believing it. People are repenting. People are trusting. People are being baptized. That is the sequence that we continually see. Look there in verse 37. After Peter preaches, it says this. Now, when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart 
And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, verse 41, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And there, right there, we see the formula. The message is preached. The message is heard, the message is received, and people were baptized. Faith precedes baptism. Flip on over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. There, we very familiar narrative here with, with Philip. And in verse 12, it says this, But when they believed, Philip, proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptized, both men and women. And once again, we see they believed Philip's message of the good news. They embraced it. They're baptized. We see this pattern. Look uh, down to verse 33. Verse 33 says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him, and as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. The Ethiopian eunuch has a copy of the scriptures. He's studying. He doesn't understand who is this suffering servant in Isaiah. Philip comes. He explains. He expounds the gospel. He believes the gospel, and he knows right away, based on Philip's testimony, that if you've truly believed this, the next logical thing to do is to be baptized. Stop the boat. Well, it's not the boat. Stop the chariot. There's water. What's preventing me from being baptized? Turn on over to Acts chapter 9. Paul's conversion. We see the similar thing here. Verse 17, Acts 9, 17. There it says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me, that is Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized. But look at this little interesting tidbit. Verse 19, and he took food and was strengthened. I just find that fascinating because it seems like in Paul's mind, because he had experienced new birth, regeneration, he wants to get baptized before he gets lunch. Let me ask you this. If you've trusted Christ, if you've repented of your sin, if you're looking to Jesus and only Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you have not been baptized, the question to you, I think, on the authority of Scripture is why not? Why? What are you waiting for? 
If you think that you need to grow and mature, you're absolutely right. But all of us in here who have been baptized, we all need to grow and mature. There's never going to come a point where you get to that maturity level that says, okay, I'm ready to go. If you have trusted Christ, if you've placed your faith in him and him alone, it is time for you to be baptized. Turn on over to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, Peter now taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And here we have him at Cornelius' house, starting there in verse 34. It says, and opening his mouth, Peter said, I most truly comprehend now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the one who fears him and does righteousness is welcome to him. As for the word, which he sent to the sons of Israel, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which happened throughout all Judea. And he begins to recount the story. Starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and granted that he appear not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Look there at verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and solemnly bear witness that this is the one who has been designated by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all of the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now look at this, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the word. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and magnifying God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, when you look at our doctrinal statement and you ask questions to people in our church about baptism, the only response we can give is what we're learning from the Scripture, that the baptism waters do not save that those who get baptized are the ones who hear the word, receive the word, believe the word. Well, we're studying the book of Philippians, and we learn this in Philippi. Turn to Acts chapter 16. The first converts in Europe, the woman Lydia that we've become familiar with, Verse 14 says, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, she was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Listen, the two men that are being baptized this morning, Brother Levi and Noah, they're simply telling you what the Lord has already done in their hearts. 
They're not getting saved today. We are not dump, dump, dumping them in as non-believers and then bringing them up as believers. Let me show you one more. The Philippian jailer there in verse 30. Acts 16, verse 30. It says this. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your house. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all those who were in the household. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them. And they rejoiced greatly with his whole household because he had believed God. Now, maybe you've caught the last two texts say that it was the Philippian jailer and his household. It was Lydia and her household. And the argument is, well, that must include all the babies, all the infants, all the children. And although we can argue back and forth about that, that right there is an argument from silence. It does not say anywhere in the Bible that babies are baptized. In fact, when you look at these verses, it keeps going back to the fact that these are people who believed. These are people who believed. These are people who believed. We feel strongly here at Grace Church Monterey Bay that baptism is always preceded by faith. After you come to faith in Christ, the New Testament command, the New Testament expectation is that you be baptized. F.F. Bruce, the scholar, states this very strongly when he says, look, the idea of an unbaptized Christian is simply not entertained in the New Testament. You say, okay, well, what happens if someone is not baptized? Uh, MacArthur has a very good response to this. He basically identifies five, five reasons why people don't get baptized. You know that there are sins of commission, sins of omission, things that we commit, just outright disobedience, we're committing that sin, and the things that we omit, we avoid, we ignore. Well, MacArthur lays it out this way. He says, sometimes people who profess Christ are not baptized because of ignorance, indifference, because they're proud, they're defiant, or they're unregenerate. Now, when he uses that word ignorant, he's not saying people are stupid. It's just you're unaware. You're unfamiliar. Uh, for me, that was my case. I just, I didn't know what the Bible taught. And so maybe you just need more teaching and some more clarity to understand the, the necessity for you to be baptized if you're professing Christ. But he also says there are some that are just proud because you know that you need to be baptized, but you were saved a long time ago. And in order for you to be baptized, well, you're going to have to humble yourself and admit, like, I've just, I haven't been obedient to this. And so he says that might be another reason why people are not baptized, because you've delayed obedience, and so now you don't want to humble yourself before others and say, I need to be baptized. He also says that you might just be indifferent or apathetic. In other words, you just can't bother with it right now. I remember um, I was doing a baptism class at Grace Church of the Valley, and some of the excuses that I heard um, from some people were just very fascinating. Um, I've heard people say things like, I can't get baptized because um, I just got my hair done and I don't want to get it messed up. And if, if that is your reason for not getting baptized is messing up your hair, I don't think you quite understand what Christ has done for you. 
MacArthur also goes on to say that some are just defiant. You just flatly refuse because you're courting sin in your life. And so why get into the waters of baptism and say, I have died with Christ and I've raised to newness of life when you have this sin that you just love and don't want to give up? And that's why he says the fifth reason is you just might be unregenerate. And if your heart hasn't been truly changed, there's not going to be a desire to publicly proclaim into everyone that Jesus has saved you from your sins. So again, let me ask just maybe some of you here today. If you have not been baptized, why not? Do you need more teaching on this? That, that's fine. Let's, let's sit and talk about it. Say, so, no, I don't, I don't quite understand. I don't maybe understand that text or how this works. That, that, that's perfectly fine. Let's, let's talk more. But you need to ask yourself, are you too proud? Are you apathetic? Are you in willful disobedience? Are you truly a believer? Are you truly a believer? This is a direct command from Jesus Christ himself. And when Jesus commands us to do something, our hearts as believers should say, yes, Lord. Yes. So baptism, it's for the Christian. How is the Christian baptized? Well, we learn the meaning there. Now, what is the mode? What is the mode of baptism? And obviously, this has been debated throughout the centuries, going all the way back. But we believe here that baptism should be by immersion, not pouring and not sprinkling. And you say, why are you cutting hairs with all this? Well, again, because we're going to the Bible. So our next point, baptism is by Immersion. Although baptism has been practiced so many different ways throughout the church age, we believe that baptism should take place by completely submerging a person underwater. And we follow this mode for three reasons. First, just thinking about the word itself. The word bapto, just a little Greek for you here, bapto only occurs four times in the New Testament, and it always means to dip. To dip into or to dip into a dye. The Bible never uses this word, bapto, to speak of New Testament baptism. Instead, that is the word baptizo, baptize. Now, that word itself is a transliteration. You say, well, what's the difference between a translation and a transliteration? Uh, the translation is actually giving you the meaning of that word. The transliteration is just taking that Greek word and turning it into an English word. So, baptizo, baptize. That's a transliteration. There would be no confusion over how we're baptized if they just translated it. You see, baptize, what does that actually mean? It actually means immersion. It means to be completely submerged. You think about this, the New Testament does have other words for sprinkling or pouring, ratizo or epikao, sprinkling or pouring. We actually, I think, Sam, you just read that in Hebrews but those words are not used in the New Testament when it talks about someone being baptized. Here's a second reason why we baptize by immersion. It's because that's the only type of baptism we actually see in the New Testament. The descriptions of baptism in the New Testament suggest that people went down into the water to be immersed rather than people coming with some water and pouring it on others. John the Baptist, for instance, he brought people into a river and he baptized them. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter three, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Jesus comes to him. He goes down under the water, comes up from the water. We're given this intriguing detail 
about the amount of water in John's gospel. In John chapter 3 and verse 23, we read this. John also was baptizing in Aon near Salem, and it says why? Because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. It's just a fascinating little detail. If he just had to fill up his little water bottle and sprinkle people, then you don't need a whole river. You don't need to have much water. But because there was much water, people were being submerged under and brought up. And similarly, in Acts 8, we read this, that when the chariot was ordered to stop, they went down into, these prepositions are important, they went down into the water and they came up out of the water. And there's our New Testament definition of what it means to be immersed. And then third, I would just add on to that one more thing, that most scholars agree that immersion was the only way the early church practiced baptism. The whole idea of sprinkling or pouring came much later. And you say, well, Don, what about like special circumstances, someone who uh, is an invalid or paralyzed? Look, we're not going to get too technical here but I've baptized someone in their 90s in a wheelchair and she was like, there's no way I'm going to have you sprinkle me. You're going to pick me up and dip me in the water. Baptism is an ordinance. It is a Christian ordinance. It is done by immersion, but it's also a public proclamation. A public proclamation. Look, just like becoming a Christian is not a private act, neither is baptism. Don't get me wrong, they're both personal, but they're not private. Which means we don't become a Christian in secret. Your relationship with Jesus is not on the down low. When you have a relationship with Christ, people should know that you have a relationship with Christ. It should be natural to talk about the one who has saved you from your sins and damnation. And in the same way, baptism needs to be a public confession. There are people who do get baptized in secret, get baptized outside of the church, get baptized in their tub or in their pool, but I don't think that's the original intent for baptism. There is something that happens. There is grace that pours down for the church family. Now, that's why there's a general excitement that we're going to have two baptisms because it motivates us and encourages us and stirs up our faith. But the whole idea that baptism can be private, it doesn't sound like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. He says this, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Verse 33, But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And you realize a relationship with Jesus is not something that is just you and him. I've heard people say that. Well, I got a relationship with Jesus. It's a private relationship. No, no, no. If you have a relationship with Christ, it needs to go public. And so that's what the waters of baptism are, is a public proclamation. We tell the world in word and works that he is worthy. And so that is why we want to be obedient to this command. If you've confessed Jesus as Lord, you've believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will want to give public proclamation to that reality that's taking place in your heart. Baptism is an ordinance. It's a Christian ordinance. It's immersion. It's public. But just so we're clear here, baptism is a symbol. It's a symbol. 
If I pull out my phone, I've got tons of pictures of my kids, my wife. If I show you a picture of my wife and I say, I'm married to her, you do not think that I'm married to my phone. Some of you might if you see me on my phone too much. But the picture that I'm showing you is a symbol, a picture of my wife. And that's the same thing when we come to the waters of baptism. It is a symbol of a relationship that was established. That's why baptism, it expresses or symbolizes our union with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each time someone steps into the water, they're being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And some people say, you're just kind of throwing out that Trinitarian formula. No, no. The reason why we do that is because this is what Jesus said we were to do. We're committed to, we're sealed with, we're blessed by a triune God. And Jesus models this for himself as he comes and gets baptized. And there's a voice that comes from heaven that says what? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And the Spirit comes and descends on Jesus. And Jesus receives both the Word and the Spirit. And in a similar way, we're saying the same exact thing, that we are now dedicated, devoted. We are purchased by our triune God. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says about being baptized into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says this. He says, we're not merely baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When faith grasps the significance of baptism, it dawns on us that we have been given the privilege of all privileges, fellowship with God. We're his, and he is ours forever. His grace does not cleanse us from sin simply for its own sake, but to fit us for his company throughout the whole of our lives so, baptism announces to us the overwhelmingly great privilege of fellowship with the triune, covenant-making, and covenant-keeping God. Secondly, our baptism symbolizes not just union with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it symbolizes our union with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Here we have just, I think, the clearest teaching of being immersed into Christ. Here Paul says this in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us that have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This here, again, is symbolism. It's not speaking literally. Baptism is not how we're united to Christ. Faith is, but we show this faith. We signify this faith. We symbolize the faith with the act of baptism. So faith unites us to Christ, and the baptism is just putting it on display. An analogy would be when... Uh, I'm officiating a wedding, and I, someone says, with this ring I wed, right? The ring itself is just a sign. Where, where do you ever ask the question, like, when are people actually married? Is it when they kiss? Is it when the guy pronounces man and wife? Like, what, what, what's the timing of all that? The covenant promise that is made between a husband and wife, ratifying before the presence of God and witnesses, 
The ring is simply just the symbol, the sign, that says that was the promise that was made. And it's the same thing. All of this points to a greater reality. Again, nothing magical, nothing mystical about the water itself. Paul is saying, we were buried therefore with him in the baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The reality is, is when we're baptized publicly, there's an expectation from all those that are observing that you are claiming Christ and you are going to follow Christ. You, as best you can, relying on the Spirit, will depend on Christ for that obedience. Your old self, your unbelieving self, your rebellious self, your idolatrous self, you are dying to that old self. And there is a new you, a new creation, new desires, new affections, new loves that are coming up in those waters. And just thirdly here, baptism also symbolizes that spiritual cleansing. That passage in Romans 6, there's no water there. But the interesting thing about Romans 6 is this emphasis on you die. With Christ and his death, you die. Uh, I got this picture up here of the Knights Templar. Uh, I had one of my former students draw this up for me because I was reading, uh, and I came across this really fascinating um, story you know, the Knights Templar were the militaristic religious order that eventually became a, a secret organization in the late 13th century. And there's all kinds of tales. They were like in Indiana Jones. But the real fascinating thing is I saw this picture and I thought, this is strange because uh, maybe it's like him getting baptized and it's not completed. But no, what this picture is expressing is the Knights would say, I'm going to give most of my life to God. I'm keeping my sword up above the water because God can't touch this. So I'll give most of my life, 85% of my life, but this one part I can't let go of because this is who I am, this is what defines me. And I would just say that anyone who has that kind of attitude, whether it's a checkbook or a relationship or a sport or a wife or a kid or whatever else, all of you must die completely, totally. All the former things have passed. There is now newness. That's the pursuit. And so again, this is shocking to me, but a lot of people enter the waters of baptism like that. I will give most of my life to Jesus, some of my life to Jesus, but not all of my life because this little corner, this little addiction, this little habit, this little enjoyment is something I want to hold on to, and I don't want him to touch it. And I would just say that is not understanding the gospel. Look at Romans 6. Just real quickly, let your eyes see. I think it's there. With Oh, it's not. But look at the words here. In verse 3, we see the word death. Verse 4, buried. Death, 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 crucified, died, died died, dead, die, death, death, die, dead. And you say, what's Paul trying to communicate here? Well, when you come to Christ, your old self really does die. Jesus didn't have a fake death. He actually gave up his life. And that is the expectation for those who come to Christ. You are dying to self and living for someone new, someone better. 
But the beautiful thing is you consider, is dying worth it? Do I really want to give up my life to follow after Christ? Well, think of the consequences if you don't. There's one good meditation. But second, think about this. We just went to a funeral last week and week before, and John MacArthur was reading this sweet tribute to Colleen Jackson. And one of the things he said was, as much as we loved her and as much as she was a help and a spiritual, she left a spiritual legacy, and George, the husband, as much as you miss her and as much as the church misses her, would any of us, any of us, pray for her to come back? And that thought just struck me. And I got to see anew that when someone passes in this life, if they're covered by the blood of Christ, why would you want to come back? Why come back to a world full of sin and sorrow and sickness and pain and despair when you could be in glory with God? That is why it is worth it to die to self because of what Christ offers you, eternal life with him forever, eternal joy, eternal bliss. That's why Paul says, look, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Finally, let me say this. Baptism, it's an ordinance. It's a Christian ordinance. It's by immersion. It's public. We understand the symbolism now, but lastly, it is a sign of fellowship and identification with the visible church, the local church. Baptism identifies us with the local church. You are baptized in the family of God. Universal, right? So brothers in Africa, in Egypt, Taiwan, wherever else in the world, we are now brothers. We are family. However, baptism needs to take place in the context of a local church. Trusting in Christ, submitting to him in baptism here at Grace Church Monterey Bay means that you're becoming a member of this local congregation. The, the two brothers that are getting baptized this morning, they're saying, I need encouragement. I need accountability. I need oversight. And I need people that I can love and use my gifts to be a blessing and encouragement as well. And so when we're baptized, we're not baptized to be placed in the ether. We're not baptized to be like Han Solo. We're baptized to be with one another in the context of a local church. And so you'll hear Pastor Nick and I talk about baptism is really the front door. It'd be sweet if we can just take a peek. Lord, can I take a peek at the, the, the book of life and see who's in here and who's not? We, we can't do that. But what we can do is we could evaluate a credible profession. We can see someone's willingness to be baptized. And we can say, as best we can tell, they're showing fruits and signs of genuine conversion. We don't want to make baptism, and we don't want to make entrance into the church more difficult than it is to being a Christian. But when I see things like I saw online, when I see what I saw on Twitter, I realize a lot of people don't understand what the Bible teaches about baptism. And the beautiful thing is that God has given us his word to have a clear understanding that this ordinance is not optional. It's required. It is the first act of obedience. And it is a beautiful picture of what's taking place internally in the hearts of every single believer. And I'm excited that you get to witness this today. Let me conclude uh, with... Just a summary. The whole sermon wrapped up into a paragraph. You say, well, Dom, you could have just read the paragraph for us. But here's Bobby Jameson, 
who wrote a book called, um, I think it's Going Public, and it's all about baptism. But this is what Bobby Jameson says. He says, baptism is where faith goes public. It is the gathering point where God's invisible work of regeneration is made visible to the world and to the church. And from an individual believer's side, baptism is how a new believer publicly commits to Christ and his church. Baptism is where you sign on the dotted line marked, everything I have commanded you. So baptism doesn't just witness to a commitment. Baptism actually makes a commitment. In baptism, a Christian publicly claims God as his Father, Christ as his Savior and Lord, and God's people as his people. One paragraph summarizes the whole sermon. Baptism is a beautiful thing, and we get to partake of that right now. Let's pray. Oftentimes, Lord, I think to myself, I wish I would have known that when I was younger, younger in the faith. I think it would have spared me a lot of trouble and heartache and confusion and and even bad teaching, wrong teaching. But we thank you, Father, for your goodness to reveal your truth to us. We wholeheartedly believe and embrace that baptism is for the believer, those that have put their faith and trust in Christ. And Lord, we know that there are others uh, in the evangelical church who hold to different views and who will even use the same text, the same scriptures to, to come to different conclusions. Father, we know that this is not a maybe a first-tier doctrine. And so we can have fellowship and, and union and communion with others who don't necessarily hold to these views. But Father, I think that the case is compelling and clear. As going down in the water is a representation of dying to self, dying to the flesh. And Lord, although we know that no one going down in the water is going to come up perfect and stay perfect, we recognize that it is a trajectory of life, a direction of life, a willingness to say goodbye to the old. And it is a, a violent killing is what it is. It's a crucifying of the old self. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the one that gives us new desires. We don't conjure those up on our own, but it comes from your holy word. It comes from observing the person and work of Christ. And Father, for those of us that have been baptized and have reaped the benefits of seeing your, your promises fulfilled, your commitment to our sanctification, even as we read earlier, we're so thankful that we don't have to live the Christian life on our own, but that your spirit empowers us and convicts us and challenges us and motivates us and drives us towards obedience, obedience that is not done without the heart, but the whole heart, mind, soul, body, and strength given over to make much of Christ. Jesus, you are worthy. And I know that Levi and Noah want to proclaim that today. So would you bless our time as we hear these testimonies and encourage these brothers? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.